This Dharma talk by John Sutherland, Self and Soul 3, was given at Cerro Gordo Temple, Santa Fe, New Mexico, on February 11, 2010. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the midst of a conversation that I apparently can't wait to get back to um, about about the self and the soul. Um, and those are words that can obviously mean a lot of different things in different contexts. So just for anyone who hasn't been here, um, by in, in this conversation, in this way we're talking together, by self we mean... Um, that part of our consciousness which is always telling the story of our lives and always assigning meaning and value to things. So, you know, it's simply it's the voice in our heads that's going all the time and it's the, the thing we mostly tend to need when we say I or me. The soul is another part of our consciousness which is a kind of repository for all of our experiences. So it's as if the soul is a pond or a pool into which flow streams of experience and uh, thoughts and feelings and karma and landscape and politics and all the things that make us up. But the soul doesn't have a linear narrative and the self is always trying to take the elements of the soul and make a story out of it. But the soul inherently doesn't have a story. It is a, um, a beautiful sort of inflowing of experience. And um, it's a way of seeing the particular, very local, very time-bound bit of the universe that you call yourself. That little bit of the universe that rises and falls for a little while and uh, you think of as you. So the, the difference between the self and the soul, you know, in a, in a kind of shorthand is, is something like um, how you describe an experience or an event. Um, from the perspective of the self, Today I got a lot of things done on my to-do list. Okay. From the perspective of the soul, it might be something more like there was a list, there were check marks, <laughs> there was a warm feeling of satisfaction and relief. <laughs> okay. So, but you can kind of feel the difference between those two things. Um, I got a lot done on the to-do list, or there was a list, there was a feeling of relief. So tonight I want to um, take a look at some of the old Mahayana traditions. Uh, the old, very, by old I don't mean outdated, I mean <clears throat> ancient, some 1,500 to 2,000 years old, ways of looking at human consciousness. And um, to see if there are things that are part of the Mahayana tradition that might correspond to how we're speaking about self and soul. 
And um, here's a spoiler alert, the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, so there, there seem to be some kinds of correspondences. But it's also true that we are looking at them from the perspective of at least 1,500 years and at least one really big ocean away from, from when those ideas were formulated and elaborated. And so it's possible that we bring something to it as well. It's possible that we have uh, a way of looking at it that might um, be an interesting mix-up. One of the old uh, Chinese Chan teachers, Wang Bo, used to talk about wise digestion of the tradition. And he said that if we, if we read the books and do the practices and have the conversations and all of that, w- just with the sort of aim of accumulating experience, you know, I've read so much, I've done so much, I've put so much time in on the cushion, that will give us indigestion. But if we really eat the traditions and chew them up and swallow them and make them our own, if we really make them our own, that is wise digestion and that will nourish and sustain us. So um, let's see whether this looks like an exercise in wise digestion or not and um, you, you can be the judges of that. In the, in the Mahayana, in the philosophies of mind that developed in the first centuries of our era, there were, in, in one formulation, in, in a common formulation, kind of eight layers of human, human consciousness. And the first five layers had to do, corresponded with, related to the five senses. So there was the consciousness that arises with hearing, with seeing, with um, smelling, with tasting, and with touching. So that's easy. Then there was a sixth consciousness, which uh, usually gets translated as mind. But what's kind of interesting to me about it, and for another time, but I'll just, I'll just note it, is that mind was seeing, seen also as a sense organ. And psychic events, be they thoughts or other kinds of psychic events, were the objects of the sense organ that was called the mind. So that's a pretty different and maybe interesting way of thinking about mind, which we tend to think about as the sort of all-encompassing, you know, whatever. But actually, that it, it's a sense organ with thoughts as its object. And it had, um, has another job, which is to synthesize all of the, the information and the experience that comes in through the five uh, physical senses and um, to make some kind of coherent sense out of them. So that's the first six, and it's the second two, the, la- the last two, seven and eight, that I want to focus on tonight and see about their correspondences with self and soul. The seventh, um, the poor seventh, is, always has names like the diluted consciousness or the tainted consciousness. <laughs> you know, it's the one that gets it wrong. It's the one that looks at the eighth consciousness, which I'll talk about in a second, and, mis- and thinks it's a self. It doesn't understand that it's not. So um, I, just, I just felt bad about calling it diluted and tainted and all of that stuff. So I was playing around with it, and I finally came up with mistaken consciousness. It's the mistaken consciousness. And then when I was making some notes, I realized that I was abbreviating it as MC. And um, I really liked the pun of that, that, that this is the consciousness that's the MC in our heads all the time. <laughs> um, Okay, 
So it's, and let me, let me explain the eighth and then I'll jump back to the seventh. The eighth consciousness is uh, called the storehouse consciousness. And it is the place where all of our experiences accumulate. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? It's, uh, everything falls into the storehouse consciousness like leaves falling from a tree and they just pile up in there. And um, that piling up goes on for a lifetime and other things happen. Um, one of the things that happens is that the, as those experiences come into the storehouse consciousness, this is the, this is the word that's used in the texts, uh, they perfume the storehouse consciousness. So each event, each experience perfumes the storehouse consciousness in some way. And they leave um, traces or um, impressions on the storehouse consciousness. And if those traces and impressions ripen in a certain way, they become seeds. And those seeds eventually, at some point, um, sprout and give birth to new um, events in our lives. So you've got experience falling in, permeating the storehouse, perfuming the storehouse, leaving their traces. If the traces persist or are strong enough or a bunch of similar ones accumulate, they sort of coalesce into seeds. The seeds grow and they're the source of karma, of of new events, new things that happen. And um, I always think of, of something Jung said which was so brilliant. He said, uh, anything that we force down into the unconscious, anything that we refuse to deal with but just push down, anything we force down into the unconscious returns as fate. (laughs) So it'll go out into the outer world and come right back walking towards us if we if we don't deal with it on the conscious level. So that seems very much like this idea of the Alaya Vijnana and the, the storehouse consciousness and the seeds that, um, that ripen and give rise to events. Um, it also provided a, a kind of handy way for dealing with the, the problem of... of um, Reincarnation. You know, if there's no if there's no persisting self, how do you get reincarnation? And that was held in the storehouse consciousness that those seeds persisted. They are the things that were passed from in this sort of stream of consciousness from one life to the next, and that's what connects one life to another. Anything that we don't sort of ripen and, and, and get all the way through um, and let go of will persist into the next life. Okay, so that's, you know, that's sounding pretty soulish, right? This, the pretty, pretty kind of similar um, idea. And so jumping back up to the seventh level of consciousness, the mistaken consciousness, the mistaken consciousness looks at all of that and see something that is coherent, that continues, that is a, a solid and existent self. That's the mistake it makes. And then it does all this stuff based on that mistake. And that's all the stuff that we have trouble with about the self. Okay, so is that roughly clear? Okay, so, so then there's a kind of elaboration of this... Um, 
map of consciousness that comes in a little bit later in the Mahayana. And all of a sudden, people started talking about this storehouse consciousness as being the location in us of the Tathagata Garbha. Tathagata Garbha is the inherent Buddha nature in all of us. Um, Tathagata is a name for the Buddha that, that means thus come or thus gone. It means both things at the same time. And Garbha is um, a womb. It's also the embryo inside the womb. It's the innermost thing. It has a whole sort of cloud of meanings that, that, that um, speak to the, the possibility, the, the, um, the inherent capability of all human beings to become enlightened. That's what it is. And this was located in this storehouse consciousness. So that's interesting. The soul is the place where the possibility of awakening, actually the surety of awakening, resides. And then another move gets made where that um, womb of the Tathagata, womb of awakening, is identified with uh, awakening itself, with the awakened state. So by a couple of steps, you've got storehouse consciousness equals complete enlightenment. So that's interesting, because here we have, we're looking at the same thing, and we're seeing it from different perspectives. Sometimes it's the storehouse consciousness, but simultaneously, in some mysterious way, it has the potential to become um, enlightenment itself. And then when, when these, these ideas came to China and influenced Chan really strongly, and then in China with the koans you get this sort of further development where you drop away words like become and will transform into, you know, and um, is inherently or latently, and you just get, you know, it's, 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 the, it's the soul and it's enlightenment and it's all there simultaneously at the same time. But I think sometimes it can be helpful to look at it as in its two aspects, because I think that that, that says that, that speaks to a way in which we experience our consciousnesses a lot in life, which is, you know, on, on some days, um, if enli- enlightenment is even latent, that's sounding pretty good, <laughs> you know, because it, it ain't so apparent. And on other days, you know, we can feel like we have these moments where we see it all, where we know it, we, we, we are experiencing it all. And um, we tend to sort of move back and forth along that spectrum. So um, although the Coens would say, you know, it's all one right here and right now, there's a certain human truth about something that sometimes feels one way and sometimes another. So, when I look at this and and consider this teaching from a very long time and and a distant way away, one of the things I, I, I notice about it is a kind of soul event. So I want to talk about soul in terms of how we how we work with this material and. 
the soul event I mean is that the thing that lights up for me in all of this, the thing that catches me is perfuming. That's just, oh, what's that? I want to know about that. There's a door. Perfuming is a door. And I want to walk through that door and find out where, uh, where it wants to take me. When we bring that kind of idea in, we are bringing in a, a sense of the soul that is more, um, more natural in some Western poetic traditions and, and other kinds of traditions. Um, the, the description of the levels of consciousness and the Alaya Vishnana and the, and the Tathagata Garbha and the Dharmakaya and all of those things that make up the Mahayana teachings are um, really brilliant and clear and precise. But one thing they aren't so much is warm. And um, when we, when something happens like you're caught by a word like perfuming. There's a possibility of bringing in warmth. And I think that that's something we can, from our vantage point now, digesting this beautiful material, bring to it and see what happens when we do. So um, let me let me give a, a, a quick example of what I mean by a, this different perspective on soul as opposed to storehouse consciousness. When we say someone has soulful eyes, what, what do we mean by that? Something like deep and full of feeling and full of um, experience of all different kinds. What else does, what else does soulful evoke in that sense? Ancient and timeless. Mm. Warm. Yeah. <clears throat> Bright and clear. And with a certain weight. Okay, so that's the sense of soul that I'm interested in in exploring in relationship to storehouse consciousness. I just, I'm pretty sure that we're never going to be in danger of saying she has really storehouse consciousness eyes. (laughs) It's just a kind of different way of looking at the the same thing. So um, over the the next um, little while, I want, to, um, I want to explore if we bring those two things together, if we bring the warmth of, for shorthand I'm calling a kind of poetic tradition of the soul, if we bring the warmth of that with the, with the clarity and the brilliance of the traditional Mahayana teachings, what happens there? What can we understand about our own natures? So that's one direction I want to move in. And the other is getting back to the poor, tainted, defiled consciousness, the mistaken consciousness. I'm really interested in redeeming that. Um, and and I, I'm beginning to see a way forward for that. If the uh, storehouse consciousness is the seat of the Tathagata Garbha, if it is the place where 
Buddha nature and awakening are inherent and possible, um, we can look at that in one of two ways. We can say either that is going to come like a bolt from the blue, uh, this flash of enlightenment, and it's all going to be Alaya Vishnana before that and Dharmakaya after that. You know, that there's going to be this moment that separates um, the nature of, of the storehouse consciousness. Um, could happen, might happen, but we don't have to wait for that because that um, inherent awakening is always happening. It's always happening in us. It's a process that goes on throughout our whole lives. And it seems to me that if that's a process that's going on throughout our whole lives, there's the poor mistaken consciousness looking at it and seeing it incorrectly. But if it changes, if it becomes more and more awake, might the mistaken consciousness not be capable of noticing the change? Might it not be capable of um, awakening along with the storehouse consciousness? And with that, we really don't have to wait for a bolt from the blue because we can get right in there and work with the mistaken consciousness. In fact, that's what a lot of of, uh, our practice is about, is really trying to clear away the the errors of viewing, the errors of judgment, um, so that in the same way that the, the storehouse consciousness can realize its true nature as awakening, the mistaken consciousness can realize its true nature as the self. And so that's another direction I want to I go towards. How, how does that happen? And here's a, here's a question that I, I'm, I'm very interested to see if it strikes you in the same way it struck me when I thought of it. Um, we talk so much about the deluded, defiled, mistaken, tainted nature of the self. How much time do we spend talking about what a good self is? What's a good self? What's a self that is not mistaken? What's a self that has moved into its proper role, is, is, is realizing its own self-nature, the self-nature of the self, and is really living from that? What's that like? We don't spend so much time talking about that, right? Mostly we're talking about what's wrong. So there's another direction I really want to go in, um, in in the time to come. What's a good self? What's a, what's a self that has, is in the process of realizing its true nature and acting from that? Okay, so um, I will leave it there for tonight. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.